Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax. Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They called me Ben. We're joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul, Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you. You are here. And that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. What better way to begin? War. Huh. Good what God. is it good for? Uh, so, some stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, a lot of things depending on who you ask. History hinges on the outcome of global and regional conflicts. The world in which you exist today, no matter where you live, is the way it is because of some conflict in the past, whether ancient or whether recent or indeed ongoing. We know war drives innovation, along with misery, degradation, and death, and wars themselves as long-time listeners will know, are rife with conspiracies and conspiracy theories. War generates, and it costs, billions upon billions of dollars every year. We actually do not know how much because there's a lot of dirty money involved. Shout out to the uh, Department of Defense's disappearing pallets of cash in the billions. We remember that story uh, fading from the news. 
but we we have snapshots. Like for example, when you look at World War II, Congress estimates that war alone cost the U.S. four point one trillion dollars, which I promise you is a number none of us listening to the show today can truly comprehend, right? Like, we don't even know what a billion dollars is, really. It's pretty hard to wrap your head around it. Uh, And like you said, that's for the U.S. alone, right? Yeah, that's not a country that had its entire infrastructure or large swaths of it wiped out by bombs. Yeah, one of the few that did not. Uh, So the motivation for war can come in any number of guises. And we've said this on the show before, and I I know it can be a controversial opinion for some, but historically, at the core, no matter what the rationale is, war has always been resource-driven. In very simple terms, that other tribe has stuff we want. Or we have stuff they want, and we're worried they're just going to stop talking to us one day and take it. Humans, historically, are terrible at sharing. <laughs> That's also true. Uh, so today's question, I think, Matt, Noel, it's it's been on our collective minds for a long, long time. Is war more than just a breakdown of communication and diplomacy and alternative strategies? Has war, in the U.S. especially, become an economic necessity? Is the U.S. addicted to war? Here are the facts. Also, we're going to say war a lot in today's show. So don't worry if you encounter what's called uh, semantic saiety. War, 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 war. It only takes a few. And then it just sounds like a synthesizer noise. Generally for this show, we're talking about actual warfare, not necessarily Cold War things. Although the buildup for a Cold War situation can be very economically viable for a country, right? Well, and, and it involves many of the same things to, to the lead up, right? Than a regular war would. It's all about preparation and gathering infrastructure and all that stuff. Yes. So I guess it is kind of both of those things, Ben. But it, but in in many cases throughout this episode, I'm assuming we're going to be discussing a, a hot war where there are, there are missiles flying and weapons being fired. When we're using the stuff we've been building for so long, that's an excellent point because uh, you still have a lot of militarization in a Cold War. You're just you're preparing in advance. You're getting that uh, what do they call it in cooking? Your mise en place, where you cut up all the ingredients in advance so you can cook right when it's time to cook. Also, ah, it's this, the best way to go about it. It is. It is. It's totally worth it. But all uh, we're talking about cooking at this point, not Cold Wars. Just to be clear. Also, it's going to bug me if I don't point it out. Uh, I said semantic satiety, but I think it's semantic satiation, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, in many ways, the best way to explain what we mean when we say addicted to war or an economic necessity is to explore it through an analogy. A nation, any nation, is kind of like a household. There are bills to pay, there are mouths to feed, there's work to do. And it might be surprising to some of us to realize that the annual activities of nations often obey a cycle, similar to the cycle maybe in your own home. You know, you have planned expenses, you unfortunately will have unexpected expenses, and then hopefully you have planned income or profit. Like, you know when your paycheck is coming, or if you're well-to-do, you know when your, I don't know, dividends come in, or when... You forget, get fully vested in your um, tiger farm or your dirigible 
dirigible dealership. All right. Well, it's not a perfect analogy, but you see what we're saying. You know, the money in dirigibles is really in the service section, you know, so totally you can only sell so many dirigibles, but you can repair dirigibles like all year long. Yeah. And apparently you can patch them using sausage skin or sausage casings. That's a weird history nugget for you. That's awesome, Noel, and prescient, because I think we all know that's going to come into play in a bigger way in uh, today's episode. We're, we're referencing an episode of Ridiculous History uh, that we did. It's, there's a weird undercurrent to being very pro-dirigible in our work. It's true. It's true. I think it's just because it's like a, it's, it feels like such a transportation of the future that actually makes absolutely no sense. Because they're very limited. They can only fly at like medium to low uh, altitudes and not hold that many people. And they're kind of hard to board and they spring leaks all the time. And, you know, some of them explode in a cloud of fire and destruction, you know, when you fill them with the wrong stuff anyway. The point is here that even nations have to have gigs. They, they have to be sustainable. They have to make money. The rules for nations are very, very different from the rules for individuals. That's where we get into things like deficits and uh, trade deficits and the idea of national debt. But at the basis, nations, countries, as well as the corporations and individuals existing within them make money in any number of ways. We're talking manufacturing and exports, taxation, agriculture, technology, and stuff like that. Most nations try to have a diversified collection of profit streams. And that's because nobody on the geopolitical level trusts anybody else. And they absolutely should not. If you find yourself painted into a corner and your economy is too dependent on a single type of thing or a single genre, then you are extremely vulnerable to economic warfare. That's true. So let's take the earlier case of Operation Satanic. We talked about this recently uh, with the uh, amazingly named uh, Rainbow Warrior Trawler. Greenpeace outfitted and France bombed the ever-loving out of. Uh, I'm, I'm saying that. Those are your words, Ben. I cannot claim credit. Uh, that is absolutely accurate, but I had to say it because it's a lot of fun. <laughs> it's a technical term, right? We figured that out. <laughs> yeah. Ben invented the phrase, bomb the ever-loving <laughs> out no, Credit where credit is due. No, some guy at a Taco Bell invented that uh, shortly after he went uh, a chalupa too far. Oh, no. Well, it, okay. Wow. Well, well, in the case of the Rainbow Warrior, we discussed this not long ago. Uh, listen to the episode if you haven't yet. But France, a, a team of secret operatives from France, went on over to New Zealand where the Greenpeace's ship was, uh, was stationed, the Rainbow Warrior. And they dove down into the water, planted explosives on the side, and it exploded in ever-loving stuff and uh <laughs> twice they hit it twice and unfortunately a photographer passed away uh when they did that but it was weird because at first it was thought you know it could be enemies from anywhere that came and hit this thing but it turns out it was france and new zealand learned pretty quickly yeah new zealand knew almost immediately that france was the hidden hand behind this act of terrorism and they confronted them it's a very tense situation but france had leverage over New Zealand in a very dangerous way because New Zealand was extremely dependent on exports to Europe, the United Kingdom in particular. And Europe, in this regard, was moving as a posse, right? They were a supergroup. And 
France then was able to strong arm New Zealand by saying, look, if you don't play ball the way we want you to and give us back some of our operatives, we're going to cut off your trade relations with Europe. This would have wrecked their economy. And there's no arguing about it. Uh, that is the threat of economic warfare. If New Zealand had a more diverse economy at the time, the conversation would have gone differently. Yeah. They, yeah. They could have, they could have um, I, I think, pursued different courses of action. So that's what we mean when we talk about being dependent on something. And just the other thing to take into account here is that Greenpeace was not a New Zealand-based organization. They just happened to be there while they were on their way to France-controlled waters in the Pacific. So they, it wasn't as, you know, it wasn't as though it was two countries coming head-to-head in an act of aggression directly against the country, but it did occur, you know, in their country. So it's just a weird situation all around. But it's a really good point, Ben, that having that, uh, leverage is really what changed the scenario there. Yeah, and for another example, just uh, that story is wild. Please do as uh, as you were saying, Matt. Check out the episode if you haven't heard it yet. It is a it is a bizarre ride, and maybe another way to think of it. If you're wondering why that seemed to be a big deal to New Zealand, um, imagine imagine what the current U.S. administration would do if it was proven that Iran bombed, uh, bombed a Greenpeace ship that was docked, you know, in Baltimore or something. That's, right. Right. Uh, so the, here's our other question. You know, economic necessity, it's kind of a dry term. It's kind of boring, right? You don't, you don't hear people use that phrase too often in casual conversation, but let's think of it in less blood-soaked terms, in a way that's kind of fun, actually. Uh, we are of the age, uh, all, all of us on, on the show today, and maybe you listening along with us, we're old enough to remember the reign of department stores, the old big box stores. A lot of them are still around, but there used to be many, many more. Riches. And, hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. And some of them had just the, the weirdest names, like Dillard's. How would you spend that much money on a business and call it Dillard's? I feel like Dillard's. It must have been somebody's name. It had to the be. Guy, because that seems like the kind of thing you'd call somebody like as a slight, you know, mm-hmm. like you Dillard. Mm-hmm. Like something Beavis and Butthead would say. Yeah, oh. but I mean, come on, Phyllis. Nah, Phyllis, yeah. But that's, that's Dillard. Very, very old school. That's just that's one. Just you're Diller. right. You're right. Sorry. A, uh, Dillard uh, sounds like dullard. You know, it just sounds mm. like a term of abuse. It does. <laughs> but they, they did pretty well for, for quite a while. Uh, now, they've been supplanted to a great degree by online businesses uh, such as, uh, you know, Jeff. We all know Jeff. Jeff from Amazon. He might be in your house right now as we're recording. So tell him we said hello. Uh, but here, here's where we're going with this example. Since the rise of shopping malls and department stores, especially post-World War II, there's been one period of time that all of those retail businesses prayed for and feared and relied upon, and that is the, the period between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Here in the U.S., that, is, that was historically, and probably still is today, the most profitable and stressful time of the calendar year for businesses for a couple of reasons. I mean, profitable, that's easy to guess. Tons of people are spending billions of dollars 
sometimes money they don't have. Sometimes it's all on credit cards to buy gifts, to go on trips, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it's also really stressful because for a lot of businesses, this was their one shot at getting back into the black if the rest of the year hadn't gone so well. And businesses in the U.S., I assure you, retail businesses continually think about this period at some point every single day of the year, and they should because their future may depend on it. They are economically dependent on that period of time. That's a great example, Ben. And it's not, it's not just department stores and you know online sellers and everything like that. It's everything. Uh, if you think just about the advertising industry, the thing that supports most, most podcasts out there, unless they use Patreon or some other donation system, ads pay for things. And in the ad business, it's that same exact period. They call it Q4. That's where you... That's where you make or break your calendar year. Oh man! And just a peek behind the curtain. That's where, if you're if you're someone like us, that's that's where you'll get a lot of weird stuff at the very <laughs> end of the year. People say like, "Hey, um, do do any of you have personal experience with Dr. Pepper Zero Sugar or mm. cave cave diving?" Dang, that's good. <sighs> ah, looks good, Matt. I can see the droplets glistening on the outside of the bottle. Uh, God, I wish you could see that out in podcast land. But either way, you should go get yourself a refreshing Dr. Pepper. Um, but yeah, no, it's like it's like it's not only make it or break it time; it's use it or lose it time uh, for ad, you know, for brands because they literally have this money remaining that they have to use, or it like rolls over into the next fiscal year or whatever. So a lot of mad money feeding frenzy spending going on in Q4. Yeah, that reminds me, Matt, I, I forgot to send you the email. Would you be willing to cave dive into um, a cavern system that was filled with Dr. Pepper Zero? If, as like an extended mid-roll? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, we'll get you. We'll, we'll, we'll probably be able to get you out of there. Let's do it. <laughs> okay, great. So, uh, I, Noel, I got to shout you out. That That is enormously prescient. You were killing it today because uh, – you're you're right. The ad industry does have that cycle. People might be surprised to learn. I think we mentioned it on air in the past. The defense industry has that cycle too. It's the well, we're cursing on today's show, so it's the weirdest day in the defense department because they have a cutoff for times that funds can be allocated, and they have to spend all that money so their budget doesn't get cut the next year. You know, whatever their little uh, whatever their fiefdom may be, and so you'll see these increasingly desperate calls going by time zones. And the very last one, of course, is like the furthest west. That's the, Those are the final approvals. And everybody is trying to spend money because if they don't, like you said, they'll, they'll use it or they'll lose it. And this economic example in retail uh, holds true to a degree for other swaths of the economy. This is, if you are... Uh, a, a high muckety muck at a department store, or if you're a high muckety muck at a big online business, then you know very well that profit projections around this period of time are baked into your yearly estimates of profit and loss. Your supply chain is oriented toward uh, working at its peak during this time. And then there's an army an army size amount of temporary workers that are hired just to be warm bodies on the job. This also applies to shipping and production, et cetera, et cetera. But 
over the years, over the decades, especially after the horrors of World War II that are still very much with us today, scholars began to ask, have the U.S., the former USSR, and other nations caught themselves in a trap? Like that Elvis song, Suspicious Eyes. Suspicious Lies? Suspicious Minds. Minds. We can't go. Yeah, like that one. Um, all right. Thank you. You guys saved me on that one. But have have we become not a country that is capable of waging war, but a country that relies upon the act of war as a means of financial stability? And is it just us? And is it just us? We'll pause for a word from our sponsor. Uh, as as our pal Robert Evans likes to say, goods and services. You know, maybe Raytheon or Illumination Global Unlimited will pop by, and then we'll be back uh, to dive in uh, to some disturbing things. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know true crime, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, 
We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Here's where it gets crazy. Matt, Noel, let's just cut the podcast short. What's the answer? Is the U.S. addicted to war? (laughs) It's complicated. I mean, they're addicted to war in the same way that Robert Palmer is addicted to love. (laughs) Right. It might also be an economic necessity for him. (laughs) (laughs) We're on on a just reference roller coaster here, guys. I'm loving it. Um, (laughs) I think it's been a weird day for us. Uh, Yeah, you're right. It dives into the realm of conspiracy. And Matt, you're absolutely, I agree with you. Absolutely. The answer does feel complicated but maybe not complicated in some of the ways we might assume. During Mm. World War II, which was the last hot global conflict, ouch, as we record this. Has anybody checked the news? guys? Global Let's pause real quick. Somebody Google. So Vietnam's out. Vietnam is out, yeah. War on terror, does that count? It never ended. It's like Lobster Fest. It's not global, I guess. Yeah, I guess the whole ISIS thing too. Yeah, I guess that's the last global conflict. Mm-hmm. And now we are in end, endless wars, like promotions at Red Lobster. I don't know why I'm so obsessed with Lobster Fest. But anyway, yeah, during World War II, multiple nations became what we call war economies. This is not necessarily a bad thing, but it is very much a move. Yeah, this is when an economy prioritizes creating Weapons of war, things that are necessary for war, everything from uniforms to food supplies to the ammunition to the actual machines of war, anything you may need to actually wage war. Even even things like concrete, manufacturing concrete and other things will be needed to build while in some other country or, you know, while uh, engaged in a battle in some other area. So all those support systems, too. And this usually happens, again, like we talked about, when there's open conflict, when it's a hot war, when uh, when governments are fighting against each other, essentially, even if it's through proxies. And the governments of the each individual actor that's involved there, dude, they just... They uh they open up that bank vault. They get all their wallets out collectively. Everybody's like, "All right, well, let's see, uh, let's see what we can do here. How can we contribute?" Oh, I know for sure that factory over there was making Volkswagens for a while. We're gonna need to then make tanks there. Okay, great. And they just start allocating new, even like existing infrastructure to war. Make it rain. Make it rain. Pictures and yeah. missiles. Picture, uh, picture governments, like picture the U.S. government during World War II, uh, kind of like Tom Cruise's character in Tropic Thunder when he's doing the dance. And he's mm. like, oh, yeah, it's time, right? Like, you can have as much funding as you want. There is no limit in terms of finance. There is a harsh limit in terms of timeline. So, mm. so like, just a made-up example and say, all right, we want you to... You have a clothing factory. Now we want you to shift from making dresses and trousers. You're only making 
uniforms now. And they're like, all right, that's fine. We need X millions of dollars to, to retrofit and to get up to speed. And they're like, okay, well, how about we give you twice that and you get it done now? That's, yeah. that's how it happens. And, and there's the other thing here that simultaneously while that's occurring, because really what you're doing is if you're a government and you're making all of these things, well, at least in the case of the United States, you're shipping all of that stuff somewhere else. You're loading it onto ships and onto planes and things. So all of that money is essentially going away from the the country, the interior of the country. What's happening simultaneously is that there's a tightening of the belt of a lot of other spending that's occurring inside the country. And there's rationing of food, which which we saw here and in many other countries where foods, food supplies had to be rationed for regular old citizens. And again, since manufacturing has shifted, kind of the, the perceived prosperity of each individual uh, citizen kind of goes down a little bit because you're not getting new goods. You're not getting... You know, you maybe not have the funds even to make those new goods, but they're definitely not being manufactured. Right. Yeah. And and there are pretty robust studies uh, that show on an individual level, there, there can be a profound negative impact, right? Uh, because of the things that you're naming as the, the government becomes more like a purpose-built machine, an engine with one task then things that do not help the task of that engine quickly fall to the wayside. They become back burner ideas. We'll work on education later. You know what I mean? Uh, we need to make sure our country will still exist before we throw money at uh, school building projects. So you can see the logic there, but you get in surreal situations. I love that you mentioned the car industry. It's fascinating. Uh, the car industry went through plot twists that would make M. Night Shyamalan like, lose his mind. He even he couldn't <laughs> handle it because like just for a perspective of how profound, like how serious war economies are, how much money is involved, how much power and influence. 1941, the year right before the war began, the U.S. automotive industry that year alone made more than three million cars. And then 1942, war happens during the course of the war, like you said, Matt. The U.S. auto industry, well, corporate America would call it a pivot. Throughout the entirety of World War II, the U.S. auto industry, the whole thing, the whole kit and caboodle, the whole shebang, made, get this, a grand total of 139 cars for years. They went from 3 million to 139 total. Instead, I they, didn't know it was that big of a It's shift. that low. Yeah, right? It's that low. Whoa. Um, so instead, they were building tanks, airplanes, jeeps, torpedoes, you name it, right? For one customer, Uncle Sam. That's all they were doing. And uh, people were paying more in taxes as well. Uh, you, If you made over uh, $200,000 for a time, your income was taxed like over 90%. Yeah, but you know that's that's for the people outside of the real system. I would argue the one. Right. I mean, it's not like we're in that different of a situation now. I just feel like you know, I here I go again on my soapbox about taxes, but I feel like so much of my tax money goes towards these types of programs and things that I don't directly see uh, in in my day to day. But this was a time when it was obviously 
crucial. Uh, and I, I, I get it. I, I definitely do. I'm not saying we don't need to contribute tax to defense, but uh, tax dollars, I think, over the years have become overwhelmingly more and more allocated towards defense. Um, and if the country is borrowing all that money, then the cash overwhelmingly as well goes toward national security and growing the military. And again, something we're seeing today, things like education and infrastructure improvement um, tend to fall by the wayside in favor of building a bigger, better, more intimidating military, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then it becomes enormously difficult for the public and politicians to justify those non-sexy needed expenses. Like, hey, let's let's fix that bridge before it collapses. Let's make sure to take care of the non-war expenses that we already Sorry, have. no, we, we can't, sorry. It's want to uh, blow up a bridge. We can do that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, right. We could blow up a bridge. Check this out. The interstate highway system, which was uh, cr created through the Highway Act of 1957, was definitely informed by difficulties that the U.S. faced in World War II because they didn't have a, a very efficient way other than rail to get soldiers, you know, from the interior of America to a coast where they would be shipped off to war. So that's how they were able to justify it. They, look, the unethical life hack that we are implying here is probably best just said aloud and bluntly. If you want to get support for anything from a, from a large amount of the U.S. public, just somehow make it about national security or national defense it can be like um it can be having if your if your rhetoric is sharp enough i bet you could pull off something like there needs to be an ice cream store in every town with a population of more than a thousand for national security if you <laughs> somehow pull that off then people would be like yeah i'm patriotic it's the, i it's bigger <laughs> than me liking ice cream, you guys. That's what you would say. And that's that's how the system works. You can think of, so I think we've outlined the drawbacks and the benefits of a war economy. You can picture it like um, in, a, in, in a fighting game, like in Street Fighter or something, you choose characters based on their attributes, right? So uh, a war economy has a lot of, of offensive powers, right? And it has, it has a tremendous agility in some ways, but then it also has some really clear weak spots, you know, um, especially on the microcosmic level for the life of the average person living in that country. But you could think of it as a necessary evil. I mean, no matter how you feel about war, if you consider yourself a hawk, if you consider yourself like a, a conscientious objector, the truth is this, the U.S. war economy saved Europe during World War II, set a lot of other things in motion. We're not saying they were all good, but that is true. The war economy in World War II worked for a time. Oh, yeah. Well, I guess it comes to that other question. You know, if it did work so well, and it was profitable for uh, uh, many sectors. How do you then stop 
doing that? How do you go back to what it used to be, to a peacetime economy? Like, how do those car manufacturers then shift back to just, you know, making F-150s again? It it seems like it would be difficult. Well, yeah, I mean, to quote uh, Dave Chappelle, war is a hell of a drug, you know? Uh, I mean, it, once you once you got that taste for it, um, and it you are dependent on it, and you really it's really hard to wean yourself off of it as a as a whole. Like uh, in terms of rhetoric, uh, because it gets people elected, right? Uh, in terms of the actual infrastructure and the actual you know um, economy, the economic drivers that are giant corporations like Lockheed, et cetera, um, that are such a huge part of the economy. And of course they do create jobs. Um, and, and, and these are all tied into political rhetoric where people are like, well, we can't ease off of this because then everyone's going to lose their jobs. Everyone's going to be homeless and, and destitute and starving in the streets. We need this. This is who we are, you know, and it's just true. It has become almost as part of like our identity is, is that we've got to go bigger and harder and faster and stronger with all this, like, you know, war manufacturing. Yeah. What we're talking about has gone to such an extreme degree. Again, we're not making value judgments. This is simply the situation. Uh, The effects of the war economy in the U.S. and abroad reached a threshold where now it might be better to ask whether it is even possible to, uh, to wean ourselves off of this strategy or this policy. And that's a huge subject of debate. Uh, in the modern day, you know, and uh, to be fair, I think we should look at the argument for war. After you hear these facts, it might be surprising to learn this, but there is absolutely no shortage of scholars who argue that war is, on a grand scale, a good thing overall for humanity. It's a great article uh, from Forbes. It's actually a book review of a pretty interesting book that I don't completely agree with by a guy named Ian Morris. The title, he nailed the title though. It's War, What Is It Good For? Conflict and the Progress of Civilization from Primates to Robots. Whoa. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Let's see. There's a lot to unpack. Well, let's, uh, let's look at some excerpts here. Hard as it may be to believe, in general, imperialism has advanced humanity by making it safer and wealthier and by aspiring to a universalism beyond tribe and ethnicity. Okay. All right. Okay. We'll play these reindeer games. Uh, <laughs> really quickly, you know, it makes me think of, I mean, it's it's a, sort of a pop culture reference, I guess, but uh, there is a very well-known, um, in certain circles, I guess, quote from the Fallout video games is, war, war never changes. And in each game, there's a different follow-up, and they all are serving the same thesis. The first one is, the Romans waged war to gather slaves and wealth. Spain built an empire for uh, from its lust for gold and territory. Hitler shaped a battered Germany into an economic superpower. But war never changes. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And when we look at, when we, when we look objectively at strategies like this, even if they can be horrific, you know, the, the reason that they keep being used is because they work. They accomplish what the people who push for them want to accomplish. This, uh, this Forbes article really stood out to me that the writer, Robert D. Kaplan agrees with the author, Ian Morris, and he goes on uh, to say the following, this is this quote's a little bit longer, so I'm hoping maybe we can Voltron up on it, guys. Uh, he says, imperialism has led ultimately to what Morris calls a globocop, 
Mm. A, a role that the U.S. has played, however imperfectly, since the collapse of the Soviet empire. America may get into Middle Eastern quagmires, but its Navy and Air Force, not to mention the reputation of its land forces and intelligence apparatus, project power sufficiently throughout the world so as to reduce the level of conflict and so far eliminate major interstate war. And that reviewer there uh, also goes on to say, or at least he expresses that he believes the national unity that occurs when you know, there's a time of, of hot conflict like that. It can lead a country, such as it did for the United States, towards a, quote, mass college education, which is really interesting, and the explosion of suburban life and civil rights for minorities. You can kind of think about this if you look to the the boomer generation, right? The the greatest generation, the baby boomers and all of that good stuff. Um that's really where you can see what happens when there's a large expansion for for military and military use like this, and then it kind of comes back to an inward facing economy. Um, you can kind of see the the positives there. Yeah, but those positive, I the idea there is that that unification, maybe also through something like serving alongside people in the military that you wouldn't normally meet, that engendered this these ideas of equality and it made pushes for a more equitable society uh, more plausible more viable but i mm, it still feels a little rose colored just for on, sure. honestly um feels like they might have a horse in the race influencing their opinions but there is no question that war well conflict in general is enormously profitable for private entities, depending on which side they're on. Like we said, Uncle Sam's got his wallet out. He's he's a little drunk on global conflict. The sky's the limit. You know what I mean? He'll he'll reassess uh, how much you spent when he when he sobers up after after the war. Uh, defense contractors already make billions in a normal year, and a conflict, especially an ongoing one is you can see why it would be handled the way that pharmaceutical companies look at a treatment regimen. Mm. It's not a pill to cure you, but there is a pill that will treat the symptoms so long as you take it every day. Wow, and you, you can see why flags were raised when the war on a concept, the war on terror, was announced back in the day because it felt like perhaps this was just something that would be unending and would is a lever that essentially got pulled somewhere that caused the United States to have a consistent need for new weapons, new manufacturing, new a new semi-war economy basically. Yeah, yeah, that's I I think that's especially astute Matt because a conflict especially an ongoing one gives you things that businesses love, guaranteed income, delivered on a predictable cycle, right? There's, you know what will be happening. It allows you to plan uh, plan in advance. And there's a lot of patriotism too, uh, because you can also say, well, look, we have to do this research so that we remain the preeminent military, right? I have a distinct memory. It's a pretty naive, uh, childlike thing that I thought when I guess I must have been in like early high school or maybe even late middle school. But when we, quote unquote, went to war with Iraq, right? I remember this distinct feeling of, oh, shit, we're at war and we hadn't been 
right prior to that or, or there'd been like desert storm and, and all of that but that was maybe like a little before my time or it was it didn't feel quite the same but then all of a sudden it's like we are going to war um and in my mind it's like I think of war and I think of like war at home, like war on our own soil. And that just doesn't happen anymore in the United States. Not to say that it couldn't. Right. Uh, It always could. That's the that's the naive part, I think. Uh, And and it works both ways. But it's we've been in constant conflict ever since, ever since. And I just I think there's no other reason than for the economic stuff. You guys, it's not like we're benevolent, not like we're trying to help people out. We have a dog in the race every time we put our troops on the line like that. And uh, I think it's a lot of times a little bit obscured um, by rhetoric and all of that. But I, I truly believe that it is because of this addiction to all of the things that we're talking about. And, and then the idea of like somehow uh, being a new imperialist kind of uh, era, you know? Yeah, I don't want to derail us too much, but this... This brings up a question that's been on my mind for a very long time. Post-World War II, or even be generous and say post-Vietnam, does it ultimately matter if the U.S. wins these conflicts? Like to the, to the corporations, does it matter? No, I, I, I don't. I mean, unless losing means, like I was saying, war at home. You know, war that keeps us from producing. I don't think they care at all. I don't think they care who the weapons go to. We we know all the time we sell weapons uh, to folks that are not quote unquote good. You know, or, or have the moral high ground. Um, like what's going on in uh, in Israel right now, or in Gaza rather right now. It's like we. I think there's a, a big effort in in, in Congress from the legislature to not sell weapons. Uh, that are going to be used for inhumane purposes, but uh, it happens all the time. Well, that also that also is a uh, uh, reg- regardless of political opinions. There that that also that funding cycle is a subsidization of the U.S. defense industry. It's it's a weird it's a weird loophole system. But you're you know you're right. As cynical as it is to say, I too also wonder. Uh, whether or not, I, I wonder how these corporations define victory, right? Is victory is victory a better life for the bystanders and the innocents who live in these uh, countries abroad, or is victory a great Q4? I was literally about to say the same thing. Man. I mean, <laughs> so, it, I, I, we know that that's what it is. I don't think people in positions of power within a company and an organization like that have the luxury of being able to be humanitarians. We see it all the time. You know, it's at the end of the day, you can put up a good talk about how, oh, all we care about is protecting our our citizens and this, that and the other. But I think we also know from history that at the end of the day, most people who are beholden to shareholders and, and all of that are just looking to please them and to continue to make more money because companies like this require year over year growth like forever. You know what I mean? You can't ever stagnate or your shareholders are going to be like, what WTF, you know, like everyone that invests is expecting constant growth all the time. And And the only way you can do that is the same for the global economy and the U S economy, you know, wide and all of that. Um, yeah, I, I want I want to make one comment. Sorry, I kind of I just kind of held it for a minute, but I just want to backtrack for two seconds. We're discussing this concept of all of a sudden we were at war in 2003. I think it was 2003 when we invaded Iraq um, under false pretenses, by the way. Well, 
you just got to remember the United States has been involved with so many conflicts that would perhaps not be considered war, would be more like a national emergency, like when Bill Clinton declared one uh, while, you know, just before that, when you were a little bit younger. Foreign intervention. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, yeah, or a foreign intervention like in the Kosovo War or in a lot of these other conflicts where the U.S. military ends up taking part in some small or large way. Um, it's just I, you're correct about being at capital W war, but it's just weird to think that it's it. it we have been the Globo police. <laughs> yeah. Right? Globo cops. Globo, Globo cops. cops. Oh God, that's good. Ben. No, no, I didn't write true. that. That was the other guy. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, it's excellent. Um, but no, it's just true. You're, you're, you're both absolutely right. And I, I was, I was only pointing out that memory because of its naivety. And also because we really have, always kind of been at war, but there's sort of above board war and there's like below board war. And it's like, we always have to have something to service this addiction. And once we went to capital W war, it was kind of like payday, you know, it was kind of like all bets are off. So why would we ever want to change? Why would we ever want to not be in this situation? I'm speaking from the perspective of the CEO of, you know, Globo bomb. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's true. And there are millions of people who have, laid down their lives uh, in, in pursuit of, uh, of doing what uh, we believe and what we were taught is the right things to do. You know, like the Axis powers of World War II were an existential threat. There would have been a war regardless of what the U.S. did. Uh, the, the question is how are the waters muddied now in the modern day? And you have to wonder... You know, to exercise empathy, you have to wonder whether it feels awkward in those boardrooms. If you're sitting there and, and you can you can easily predict now, after your last meeting, just how much money you will make. But you are unable to predict just how many people will die as a result. Uh, people who are your fellow uh, citizens and people who live oceans away that you will never meet. This is not meant to paint with too broad or too brutal a brush. Uh, there are a lot of defense contractors who will, in good faith, sincerely argue, you know, hey, look, I'm working toward a greater good. Sure, business is business, but I'm not out here trying to kill people. I'm out here trying to build better ways to protect lives of, of citizens, of people who are from my country who are in the armed services. And this defense contractors in other countries will argue this as well. This is not just U.S. rationale. But there's no way around it, though. I mean, like, that can be true. You can believe it, but there's no way around it. You are also making a ton of money in the process. The defense budget is the capital S spice. And just like in Dune, the spice has to flow. The shadow of Orwell and eternal war looms for good reason. Let's take a moment for a word from our sponsor, and then let's look at the math. Like, just for a second. We're going to look at the math just for... A second. Strap in. We're going mathematics. 
Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know true crime, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. All right, and we're back. Here are the maths. That was bad. You're not. That was your idea. That makes you so happy. (laughs) So... So the the next part might not make all of us so happy. Military spending right now as we record from October 1st, 2020 to the end of September this year is going to ring in at around $934 billion that we know of. So that doesn't count. Black bag stuff, which is inevitable. 
Uh, this means that military spending is the second largest expense in the entirety of the federal budget. The only thing that beats it is Social Security. With that much money involved, that many people involved, it's really difficult to articulate the full extent of the ripple effects here. Especially when you consider that the DOD, the Department of Defense, is the single largest employer inside the United States. And it makes sense, depending like, if you think about its size, there are over 1.4 million human beings on active duty. And that's around 718,000 civilian personnel. So that, that's two separate groups, just so we're understanding this. Uh, there's another 1.1 million people who are in the National Guard, which is another separate thing. National Guard and Reserve are being grouped together there. And that's not even counting the other millions of people who are employed in those other related industries that we've been describing here, your Raytheons, your Lockheeds, your other giant manufacturers. It's it's crazy to think that there are so many people working for this single industry, really. Yeah, because it, it's kind of like a a meta industry, an Uber industry. It's an industry of industries. There's a very complicated Venn diagram there that I don't, I don't want us to have to draw it. Uh, but if you want to, please do draw the Venn diagram. What you see is this meta industry and uh, send it to us, uh, conspiracy at iheartradio.com. The thing is, Matt, you're, you're absolutely right. Just for a small, small snapshot, aerospace and defense, that industry alone, that, that doesn't count as the military budget. That's a separate $396 billion. It's a Venn diagram, you know, because they work hand in hand. Uh, but that figure, $396 billion, it's about 1.8%, the GDP of the U.S., which doesn't sound like a lot until you realize we're talking about the GDP of the U.S., which is one of the biggest numbers. So while people might want, not want to say, hey, Let's keep up those foreign interventions. They definitely don't want to stop building the weapons and the hardware that inherently makes those interventions possible. If the budget and the need, this is a very ugly truth, and a lot of people don't like to hear it. If the budget and the need for these things evaporated overnight, it would be an unprecedented economic catastrophe. The Great Depression would have its name changed. It would just be the first one, you know, or something like that. Or it would be the old depression. Now we're in the new depression because millions of people are out of work. Uh, everything is closing down. We, like we can't even project the ripple effects. It's like if you talk about the oil industry ending overnight. Does that mean that there's a certain callousness at play here? Like shouldn't we be able to predict or model this type of stuff or like what this type of behavior kind of – creates the ripple effects we should know and we should know that we're too dependent on it I, but but i feel like there's a certain kind of like willful ignorance towards that uh, by citizens by lawmakers and by the ceos of these companies or maybe the ceos are the ones that know the most but just give the least amount of shits. maybe but I, I don't know i'm sorry if i'm, I'm reaching here I, I just feel like there should be a scenario where we should be able to model this stuff out and and not be completely surprised when, hey, so look, oh, it turns out we're all war junkies now. Uh, but and, you uh, see the companies 
able to create such models and uh, world simulations are all in the defense industry. So there's no incentive to <laughs> create one that would prevent it. I'm just, I'm just Well, I mean, that's, that's the thing, right? Like why, why be the architect of your own demise, which is a, a pretentious way to put it, but it is something to think about and it's a very valid concern. I mean, this, this is an argument that goes across the world defense industries across the world. And I think it is a very good point. I see it as the no, you first problem. We'll explain what we mean in a second. But there's this belief that the US as a global superpower has been able to project force in a way that prevents larger conflicts. So you're, you're having smaller conflicts to prevent future disaster. And the argument says that without the U.S. as Globocop or as the world's policeman, the human species would enter a chaotic era of unrestrained power grabs. You know what I mean? You're, you're Russia. You want Crimea. You want the rest of Ukraine. Who's going to stop you? Uh, the U.S. is out of the game. So is, is that possible? Is that a real rationale that not having this power, not having this uh, friendliness toward or this openness toward global conflict, is that on balance a good thing? Some argue yes. And that last point often is one of the primary arguments for maintaining at least some vestiges of a wartime economy. So in short, is the U.S. addicted to war? Is the U.S. economically dependent on the conflict business? The answer is yes, but, which is kind of irritating, but it's true. The U.S. I think it's more like yes, but. Uh, yes. Like. Yes, Dillard. Uh, mm -hmm. But the, <laughs> but the uh, it appears that this country is in a very real way partially dependent on global conflicts continuing, or at least the threat of that conflict occurring. But there's a matter of perspective. It's cost-benefit. Is the U.S. just straight-up dependent on war because so, so much of the economy profits from it? You can call that the warmonger argument. Or is the U.S. dependent on war because not creating and not maintaining these capabilities leads to a greater problem, more conflict, more disaster, more death? We could call that the peacekeeper argument. Are we, to quote Rust Cole, the bad men who keep the other bad men from the door? I haven't <laughs> seen that in a long time. That's the sound of him carving up his Lone Star cans. Takes him, <laughs> takes him, takes him the whole season for you to know what he's carving it's out of those so cans. It's so good. It was such a good show. It really is a great show. Uh, the rest of them couldn't come close. Second season sucked. Third season was pretty good. First season was singularly great, in my opinion. But no, it, it's is that what this is about? Are we who? What bad men are we even keeping from the door? You know the other ones. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, is it a, is it an illusion? Uh, is is it a nineteen eighty four esque kind of manipulation of of our like our, our attention to say, oh, we're we're under threat? It seems to me like the threat that we're under is stuff that that this large scale warfare stuff has a hard time even dealing with. You know, like suicide bombers and like things that we have a hard time predicting, and that you can't just nuke out of existence because the moment you do that. Then another crop pops up or the way they're organized, like it's hard to, you know, kind of nip it in the bud in that way. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, the, the logical problem with war as a policy is one of 
is really one of prejudice or maybe pre-existing perspective or framework is a good way to put it, if it's a little nerdy. But you guys see what I'm saying? If we define something as a war or countries, then we are automatically dictating certain policies. We're also triggering some legal mechanisms. Those policies mean that our go-tos for resolving things are going to be coercive forces, whether that's uh, sending a military force, an actual hot conflict, whether that's uh, helping a country militarize its police, whether it's the prison system, the list goes on. And I, I heard once war called the great simplifier, and it wasn't a compliment, to be clear. It's, no. a, it's a simplifier because it makes your choices and your strategies uh, a lot more clear cut, even if they are not the best approach. If your immediate policy is use the hammer, then it becomes incredibly easy to treat every disagreement as a nail, ignoring the complex facts that led us to that situation in the first place. It becomes even more tricky when profits get involved. Someone is saying, well, what are we supposed to do with all these hammers? We're just going to not use them? Next, you're going to say we have to stop making hammers. God damn it, we're a hammer factory. <laughs> uh, uh, we're going to need more nails, guys. We're, we're going to need more nails. And it's also the, the kind of thing where we've been part of different sized companies. And I think what happens when you have a large enough size company is nuance gets lost in the shuffle constantly. Uh, and you have to have a blunt instrument approach to all of these things. And that's what happens with war. And, and, and instead where maybe like we might, you know, miss a podcast episode or lose a couple of doubt, whatever, you know, in, in, in the government scenario version of this, people die um, because of that blunt instrument approach and because of that lack of nuance, that lack of empathy. And that lack of seeing, you know, the collateral damage of, of the choices that lead to these economic booms, right? Yeah. And, and again, it's like that old proverb, you know, when elephants wage war, the gra it's the grass that suffers. It, it, Wait, you guys, hmm. in that scenario. Yeah. We're, we're the grass, I think, Matt. No, 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 wait, 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 hold on. The hammer factory scenario. Okay, yeah. we're back. We're one scenario past. Okay, got it. Okay. <laughs> all <laughs> so, right. so it just lends, it lends itself to another whole uh, section of conspiracy theory that we, we aren't even touching on this episode. But this concept of we've got all these hammers and we're a hammer factory. We can't stop making hammers right now. And we, we've got this surplus of inventory we got to find nails for these hammers to be needed for this, is the concept that then the interests in the factory or the factory itself or whoever owns the factory then has an economic interest in creating problems for those hammers to be used for. So IE conflicts, militants, uh, disasters, uh, that's a scary concept. And it doesn't mean it's happening or it's real or anyone would ever do that, but it does mean there would be an economic incentive to do it. Yeah. Yeah. If that, if that can, if that observation uh, is, is confusing or makes anybody a little bit uncomfortable, uh, consider that, consider the sheer amount of time and energy that uh, prison uh, industry lobbyists spend on writing, uh, on having inputs on incarceration laws, right? Like mandatory sentencing, things like that. There, there are conflicting motivations. But the, uh, you add to this the unfortunate truth that, again, war, regardless of the ideologies it's dressed up in, 
regardless of whether or not the politicians believe what they are telling you, war is ultimately and will always be about the control of resources. National security has never been as simple as, let's make sure uh, the enemy forces, you know, don't bomb Pascagoula or Pittsburgh or Poughkeepsie or whatever. I'm just thinking of P-towns. Um, that came out weird. But you know what I mean? Like, it's not just about protecting these physical assets. It can Providence, also, Ben. Also Providence. Providence, right. yeah. They actually, they, actually, they actually call Providence P-town. So. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a weird flex. Okay. Good to, good to know. <laughs> Good to know. Uh, so, so it's also national security is also stuff like let's ensure that our important businesses continue to function as normal. That's why so much attention is put on the Strait of Hormuz in the past. Uh, they, you know, there are countless war games. Uh, it's always under surveillance because people don't want that strait to get blocked. They worry about it messing with oil prices. Sure. It's also why it was such a, you know, um, I mean, obviously there are very real reasons that this was the case, but um, political uh, divisiveness over shutting down businesses during COVID over when businesses would return, because it's a political stance that like, no, business is everything. It must maintain. And I know that it, that literally connects back to people's livelihoods and people's lives and, um, you know, it's all that. But I, I do feel like it was made to be a political stance. And I think that's because it sort of goes into that sort of hawkishness, that mentality of, of business is everything. All else is secondary. We must continue making our GDP grow. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why national defense, maybe in uh, Guatemala, the 1950s, was something more like, let's make sure agricultural policies are in our favor. You know what I mean? And if the current government isn't cool with that, then let's, let's make a new government. Or that's why, you know, uh, at one point, in, well, at two points in history, the United Kingdom said, let's make sure China knows they need to buy our opium. Like they have to do it. And we'll go to war for it if we have to. We'll do it twice. The list, the list goes on. National security is one of those words that has a lot of ambiguous meanings. There's a lot of wiggle room. And it would be nice if uh, more politicians and pundits were honest about that problem but I want to go back to something uh, real quick before we close up. Two things, really. The, the idea of unwinnable wars and the question of what, what next, you know, how to address this dependency or this addiction, whatever you want to call it. First, you're absolutely right. One of us said earlier there was a big shift when the U.S. began fighting wars against ideas, a war on drugs a war on terrorism. Oddly enough, I think for a second, a declared war on poverty, but that, that went to the wayside very quickly. These are unwinnable wars, and when we say unwinnable, we're not saying that they are automatically waged in bad faith, and we're absolutely not alleging that, that individual people involved in these conflicts or people who join the armed forces are somehow inherently bad. Absolutely not. Instead, a problem with these wars on ideas, the thing that makes them unwinnable is that they have no definitive, discernible end point. You can never, you know, go on an aircraft carrier with a giant banner and declare victory over something like terror. I mean, I mean you, you could do it, but it would be a symbolic gesture at best. 
you know? Um, and it's like, what, what is, the, I mean, I know this is sort of different than what we're talking about, but the war on drugs is one that's always stuck in my craw. It's like, what does that look like? What does winning the war on drugs look like? Does that mean eradicating all drugs forever and all time? Does that mean, I mean, do you not acknowledge that by waging this war, people are just going to find more creative ways of doing the thing that you're, look at prohibition. I mean, it, it literally created a whole sector of crime because you're trying to force people to do a thing. It just doesn't work. No, it doesn't. And, and I think to your point, Ben, it, it points to the idea that they knew that it wouldn't work. It, it's not about working. It's not about winning. It's about creating the need that you can then fill by selling stuff whether it's new ideas or whether it's products. It's a nail factory. It's a nail factory. Oh, well done. And these, these unwinnable wars go on and on and on. And the defense spending that so much of our economy relies upon, that spice, oh, it flows. And we have always been at war with East Asia, et cetera, et cetera. But like with just this brief, you know, we're going long here, Sorry, Paul. Uh, but with just this brief exploration of the many, many, many factors that intertwine the U.S. economy and global conflict on one level or another, it is sadly, tragically clear that there is no answer right now. There is no answer that is simultaneously realistic, simple, and achievable. Because this is this is what it meant when I said, know you first. The, this is the problem. The world's great powers are in a standoff, corporate as well as state level. The first ones to fold, the first ones to get, you know, clean from war are going to suffer enormous consequences. Like you're like, like Matt, let's say you're, um, your defense contractor, A, got a name. Is it like Matt Industries? Metallica? Matheon. Matheon. Ooh, Ooh, I love that. All right, Noel, your defense, uh, your, your defense corporation, B, you, you got a cool name? Oh, how about uh, uh, Browntron? Browntron, I love it. Yeah. Uh, and these these uh, Matheon and Browntron are neck and neck, right? Uh, they're kind of like a Boeing Airbus thing. They're the we two got people, those F thirty sixes, baby. Come on out, right? They're the two two giants that can build stuff. Well, let's say Matheon uh, says. We're going to stop associating ourselves with military contracts. We want to do sort of a swords to plowshares thing. What's yeah, we're gonna just going to do um, police robots from now on. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, something harmless. Uh, domestic. So, domestic. Yeah. So, so uh, Matheon pivots, and this makes Browntron's uh, day because Matheon stocks plummet. Browntron snatches up. All these contracts, all this newly available funding, their stocks explode. It's amazing. Uh, and they're, you know, the Wall Street is publishing articles like, is there anything Browntron can't do? And the answer appears to be, no, actually, they are nailing it. That's what I would be at least saying in my speech to my shareholders. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I, I, I would mean it, you know, from the heart when I, when I said it. <laughs> but uh, the joke's on you because in in 15 years – uh, law enforcement robots are going to be all the rage and nobody's going to need weapons of war anymore because of uh, the nano, the nanites and all that. So, yeah, yeah whatever. Uh, we're going to be fine over here at hey, whatever well, my company was way, called. Way, way, way to play the long game. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I love it. This happens with countries, too. I mean, a country, we talked about this with nuclear disarmament, a country that dismantles its military capabilities 
may well see itself become a vassal state of another nation that wasn't so quick to give up the bloody game. And it's it's a problem. It's the nuclear problem writ large. It's the movie moment. It's the standoff. Someone always says, put down your gun. And someone else always says, you first. That is where this species is at. And oftentimes when the other person actually does put down their gun, the other party just picks it up and shoots them in the face with it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a lesson from fiction, but it has its basis in the real world. And that should, that should disturb people, quite honestly. And that's where we leave it today. Folks, what do you think? Is war an economic necessity for the U.S.? What about other countries? And if we are indeed in a war economy or uh, like a hybrid war economy, should we try as a nation to move toward a different system? Uh, wh- what would that be? You know what I mean? I, I don't. I don't know. Uh, the there's there was one example. I was looking into examples of unorthodox kind of economic prioritization and systems, and probably one of the most interesting is Bhutan, which rates itself not on uh, GDP, but on GDH, gross domestic happiness, something like that. Uh, and they still have I mean, their that problems. sounds nice, right? Yeah, it does. And they, they still have their problems with, you know, persecution of ethnic minorities and so on. But how? What is the answer? Conspiracies and conspiracy theories abound here. We've, I think, clearly proven that to, yes, to uh, some degree, uh, conflict does function as an economic necessity for different sectors of the U.S. What's the alternative? How do you get there? Do we want to get there in the first place? I mean, the inner flower child in me says, yes, please, let's, let's get past war. But uh, doesn't doesn't seem possible. But we'd love to hear your ideas for sure. So go ahead and uh, pick up the gun and reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, where we're conspiracy stuff or uh, conspiracy stuff show over there on Instagram. We also have a phone number. That's right. You can pick up the horn, which is, in my opinion, uh, superior to the gun. Uh, and you can give us a call at one eight three three stdwytk Leave your message at the sound of Ben's dulcet tones. Three minutes is the time that is your time to do with what you will. If you need more than three minutes, we have some other means of communication that might be a little better suited to your needs. That's right. You can send us a good old-fashioned email where we are. Conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax. Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Attention, true crime enthusiast, searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.